In all of life, we recognize a pattern in our relationships. The more casual the relationship, the less likely that any terrible hurt could emerge from it. But the relationships we have that are deep and close and intimate raise the stakes dramatically. When someone we trust utterly and love passionately betrays us, the wounds inflicted can last a lifetime. A few relationships in life are more intimate than marriage, and today on Groundwork, we look at the commandment that simply says you must not commit adultery. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Daryl, this is uh, episode number five in our eight-part series on the Ten Commandments. Our first program covered the first three, which was giving due reverence and honor to God and to God's name. Then we looked at keeping the Sabbath, honoring our father and mother and all those in authority over us. And now just in the previous episode, we discussed God's command not to murder. So that brings us now to commandment number seven on not committing adultery. Well, this is one of the most interesting topics that is taboo in a lot of circles and situations. Um, But we do know that God has something to say about it because he has something to say about every area of our lives. And then... What's also interesting, Scott, is that God designed marriage. And so when I think about marriage, when I taught it in youth ministry, I always said that when you start a fire, do you start a fire in the living room floor or do you start a fire in your house? Do you start a fire on the street? No, you start it in the places that it was designed to be placed in, whether it be a fire pit, a fireplace or in the wood on the fire pit. It has to have a specific place in order for it to go well or some people are going to get hurt. And that is what happens with marriage. God has designed it. And so it needs to go in its proper context. And we see that in Scripture. In Genesis 2, right back in the uh, continuing creation account, we find out about marriage and the marriage relationship as part of creation. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. When I've heard this taught or when I've heard this spoken at weddings that I've done or someone else has done, you realize that when Adam is brought into a deep sleep, that the rib is taken from him. It is taken from a place that is equal with him. But it's also something that I was noticed that she wasn't formed out of the dust of the ground. So you, you don't get to treat her like dirt. You have to respect her. <laughs> there you go. And it is interesting to me that God didn't just create the woman, poof. You know, I mean, most things are like God said, let there be tadpoles and poof, tadpoles. Why this funny business about the rib? Well, it's pretty clear, right? You just said it. God made Eve that way as a sign and a symbol that the man and woman, the husband and the wife belong together. They literally are part of each other. Same essence. And if they become one flesh, later. Well, that makes sense because there's that intimate connection. They're literally made of the same stuff indeed. Uh, So they belong together. And there on the New Testament, Jesus picks up on this story too. So in Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. It says, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, 
but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And let no one separate uh, that line Jesus adds there. That was not in the original Genesis 2 text, but I've spoken that at many weddings, as have you, and we've heard it spoken at many uh, weddings. So what's significant about all this, Gerald? So as we're, we're going to be thinking about adultery, but first we need to think about why adultery is bad. One of the reasons it's bad is that Genesis 2 and now Jesus and Matthew 19 make it clear marriage is a creation ordinance. It is part of the tapestry of the very creation itself. We can't get out of the creation accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 without hitting marriage. So that's really, really significant. You know, the Roman the Roman Catholic Church goes so far as to make marriage one of the sacraments. Protestants don't go quite that far. But there is universal respect and reverence for the marriage relationship. And so because the marriage is sacred, whether it be in the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, we both see it as very important and very special. But when there's something that is beautiful and good that God has made, you could always count on the devil or the enemy to try to mar it, try to destroy it, or fight his hardest against it. Because the unity that the marriage represents, the enemy does not want to see that kind of unity. That is a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. He wants to get rid of it at all costs. So he'll throw everything he can in to create chaos and confusion and pain and hurt so that the marriages do not last and show that image God wants them to show. The other thing um, that we're not going to talk about in this program, except now I just thought of it, in the New Testament, Jesus makes the man and the woman's relationship a symbol of Christ's relationship to the church. Christ and his church, this is his body, they are one flesh. So that magnifies it yet again. So you're right. No wonder the evil one wants to corrupt the marriage relationship because uh, there's a lot at stake when it goes well and the devil doesn't want it to go well. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why marriage might end uh, in a divorce, and a lot of those reasons are just tragic. There's terrible abuse. Maybe there's sexual abuse. Maybe there's sexual abuse of children. There are some legitimate reasons why marriages must end, but they're still tragic reasons. The reasons are painful. The reasons are traumatic, and they take sometimes long times for people Mm -hmm. to heal. And as a pastor who walks with people who have been through these difficult situations, I've never been one to counsel them to go back into those situations that might create harm for them or harm for another person. And so there's brokenness all over when you have people who have a very intimate relationship and they're sinful people. There's a lot of things that are happening. Sometimes it's their fault, and sometimes it isn't their fault. But sometimes we need to find a ways to move forward when relationships don't go right. And, of course, unfortunately, there are lots of marriages that end casually. I mean, you know, like it's for some people, ending a marriage is like changing your socks or something. Irreconcilable differences. Um, yeah, and, you know, you you see these stories once in a while all of Hollywood about these people who are married for a week, right. a month. I mean, how does that happen? So there are tragic reasons why marriages end. There are altogether two casual reasons, but I think we both know from experience as pastors, nothing ruins a marriage more quickly, not 100%, but nothing ruins it more quickly than adultery. I mean, the most intimate part of the marriage relationship, the sexuality part, when that gets betrayed, when that gets intruded on by another, that isn't always a death knell of a marriage, but it very often is. For some people, it is a deal breaker. And in the next segment, we're going to look at the Bible's most searing story on this warning about adultery. So stay tuned.
What does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Scott Jose with Daryl Delaney, and you're listening to Groundwork. We're talking about the Seventh Commandment today, Daryl, and you just uh, alluded a moment ago at the end of the previous part of the program that we're going to turn to 2 Samuel 11, the story of King David and a woman named Bathsheba. Uh, And as you said, Daryl, this is a very difficult story. And it's a warning, and it goes like this, or the first part of it does. 2 Samuel 11, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, and one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. What a scandal. So yeah, so far so bad, but it gets worse. Okay, first of all, Bathsheba is Uriah, the Hittite's wife, so... He's actually serving David's army, right? right? So he's out there in the military in a situation where the kings are supposed to go off to war. It's made clear that David is not out there where he's supposed to be. So he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he has this opportunity where he's envisioning this thing with this woman Bathsheba and it's not his wife. That's the problem. And you know, the fact, Daryl, that it's war season is kind of a weird word to think about. In the spring, when the kings go out to war, it's like, what? Uh, But that is kind of how it was. But the fact that David stayed behind, it kind of indicates he's kind of on the downward slope of his life, kind of the bloom is off the sage a little bit. He's not the healthy young man he used to be. He's getting a little bored. He's getting a little restless. And now he's looking for something to maybe boost his ego and he sees this beautiful woman and he has to have her and he he does uh there is some question whether he rapes her or how consensual it was but she gets pregnant so now the story gets worse david brings uh uriah home gives him a furlough from the army tells him hey you got a pretty wife why don't you go home to her tonight right he's hoping he will go home that they'll make love and then it can look like her right. baby is Uriah's baby. But Uriah is a good guy. He says, no, my troops are in the trenches. I don't get to go home and have fun. So he refuses to go home, which drives David nuts because Uriah's loyalty only makes David look worse. So what does David do? Well, a terrible thing. He pretty much arranges to have Uriah killed. What's unfortunate about that killing is that he had Uriah deliver his own letter. Mm-hmm that had in it the instructions for everybody to draw back from Urias and put him in the hottest part of the battle and have him killed. So not only does David covet someone else's wife, he has adultery, he sleeps with her, and then he covers it up by having the husband killed. So it goes from bad to worse. So there's always these other strings of relationships that are hurt when adultery happens. That's something I don't think we talked about. But when there's, it's not just always between that one person and the other. There are other people who love these people who are connected that are also hurt by what happens in adultery. Yeah. It's like a bad mafia movie or something instead of a Bible story. But 
the text tells us all we need to know when we read this in 2 Samuel 11, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord, I'll say. But many of us know David gets confronted, confesses later. The child Bathsheba bears dies. It's kind of like a punishment. But then, um, Daryl, things just kind of, it's like this adultery is the first domino, and then the murder is the next domino, and then the other dominoes keep going down because soon David's whole household is going to fall into disarray. His son Amnon, his son Absalom, and Amnon in particular, you know, they sort of say, well, the old man got away with it, so then they misbehave sexually. There's a rape of a woman Tamar. named Tamar, and then Absalom rebels and kills Amnon, and oh, the whole thing just falls apart. So that's what you were saying, Daryl. When adultery happens, the ripples of hurt just go out to more and more and more people. I think it's important for us to understand, too, that you make this point about these relationships that are being hurt and the domino effect that's Mm. going on. It seems like that when there are things that are precious that God sees as special, the more susceptible they are to corruption, the more susceptible they are to these things going wrong. And because of David's poor example, his children, his sons, they start to follow this example because they take it to the next level, really. It doesn't matter if Tamar has given permission or not. And they have used these things to give them an excuse to go even further and make it worse. It's been a problem all through history, uh, and the Apostle Paul knew about it, too. We did a series on 1 Corinthians uh, not long ago here on Groundwork, Daryl, and we, we looked at some of these passages. But here here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 being very urgent in his uh, language, starting at verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When we did this Corinthians series, we talked about how Paul just ticked off everything that they were asking him about, and he would address many issues. And in this situation, he's letting them know you need to run away from any kind of sexual morality. It's interesting how he says they sin against their own body. Um, Because when you're married, the two become one. So you literally are sinning against yourself if you commit adultery. But he also brings in this part about being bought with a price. Because of Christ's redemption, we belong to him. So we can't just do whatever we want with these bodies. We can't just do whatever we want with these minds. They literally are unleashed from God, and we need to honor him with our bodies in each and every chance we get. It's interesting you say that. I, I saw a film a while back where a man discovers um, that his wife, who's had an accident from which she'll never wake up, she's in a coma, but he finds out after the coma that she had had an affair, and he eventually confronts this man. And at one point, he says, did you ever sleep with my wife in my own bed? And the guy said, yeah. And that somehow made it worse for him. But you're right, let the marriage bed be undefiled, the New Testament says. The physical bed, that was bad enough. But really, the hurt was already there because even in another bed, it was as they were one flesh. And it was as though he were being dragged down himself. Just that sense of defilement, that sense of betrayal, the hurt that that causes and the shattering effect it can cause, it is not a surprise how many marriages get shipwrecked on the shoals of adultery because it can be awfully hard to ever blot it out of your mind again. So as we think about this, 
We've talked about the pain, the hurt, and the sacrifices and all these things that are negative about it. But as we close this program, we want to consider how Jesus himself raises the stakes and what that means for us in this sexually charged culture that we're in now. So stay tuned. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. Daryl, in the Sermon on the Mount, we mentioned this in the previous program on uh, the commandment not to murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, but really he, Jesus did this throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus works hard to teach Israel the deepest and truest meaning of God's law. Sometimes we say Jesus radicalized the law, but we mean that in the sense of the Latin word radix, which means root. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount in particular, when he kind of starts ticking through a lot of the Ten Commandments, he gets past the surface obedience. And he dives down to the root of it all. Well, I love that because, I mean, we know as we read the New Testament that he is the word of God and he actually co-wrote these commandments. Right. So I think the author of the commandments could give a real tangible root example of what it really means. If you wrote a book, Scott, I wouldn't ask your cousin what it meant. I would ask you because you had the intended meaning so you could get to the root of what you meant. And Jesus does that. And he lets the Pharisees know it's not just about what's on the surface, but it's really about looking good in the heart, not just so everybody can say, oh, well, you're really religious. Oh, great. You keep these commandments. But their heart is really the issue. And Jesus gets to that in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Boy, whether you're a man or a woman, uh, you hear that and you can only respond with a kind of a deep gulp of shame. I think we all know how easy it is to cross that line between just objectively noting, hey, that's a handsome man, that's a pretty woman, to going on over the line and then thinking, I wonder what would it be like to hold her hand or kiss him or mm, go to bed with him or her. Uh, That happens pretty easy. And Jesus says, well, you've already committed adultery in your heart when you do that. You said it earlier in the previous segment. That definitely raises the stakes. You know, what's interesting is that, number one, our culture makes it extremely easy and normalizes the, that behavior right. that is not acceptable to God. And second of all, even if you look in further in the New Testament, Paul picks this up in Ephesians 5, 3, when he says, "Not among you, there not, must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, as some in the habit of doing, you know, and the hint is the thing that hits us right between the eyes. It's very, very impossible for us to do by ourselves to keep self-control and to not have this adultery happening in our hearts. But we need help from God to do that in this sexualized culture. You said that verse from Ephesians 5, you know, you sort of want to reply to Paul and say, define hint. (laughs) Uh, Is there a wiggle room here? I'm afraid there probably isn't. Not even a hint, not even a whiff of immorality or or lewd talk and and, and the like, similar to Jesus um, in, in what we just read from Matthew 5. Now, 
Jesus said all of that because it was clearly a concern already in his day, 2,000 right. years ago. It's been a concern all through history, really. But I think we all recognize that that we now live in a world that's pretty much saturated with pornography. It's free and easy on the internet. The lust of the eye and the adultery of the heart is rampant. But it's not just pornography. It's sort of the whole culture. Yeah, it's interesting because there are many companies that use these as marketing tools, anything mm-hmm. that they can use to make a dollar, anything that they can use to make their business successful. It's in commercials. It's on the radio. It's in relationship conversations. It's in casual friends. It's on TikTok. It's on Facebook. It's everywhere. And that is one thing that makes it very difficult for us because we're constantly bombarded with these temptations and we have a choice to make, but we need God's help in order to get to a place where these don't become a root problem for us. Exactly. I've never gone to advertising school and never will, but based on most of the advertising I see, lecture number one in advertising graduate school has to be sex sells. Right. It's amazing. But half the time, you don't know what a commercial on TV is even for until the end of it because it's just all, you know, scantily clad people. And then in the end, it's like, this is for chewing gum? How do we get to chewing gum on this thing? But it doesn't matter, right? I mean, you, you sell everything. So what can we do? As we close out this program, is there any hope? Is there any grace? Well, let's think about a few things, Gerald. I think the first thing we can say practically for ourselves is let's covenant to pray for purity. I think it's important for us to know that prayer is the power that can break a lot of these things because we're asking God for help and we're asking for the Holy Spirit's power to help us. And there we also need to use the A word. The A word is accountability. Mm -hmm. And when we discipline ourselves to not look at the things, we also need to tell a person, here's my covenant and my plan for today. In a book called Every Man's Battle by Steve Arterburn, he talks about bouncing his eyes. I got young boys. I tell them the same thing. You need to bounce your eyes. If you look at something, but don't stare and don't make that, let that take a root in you because those things are what we're trying to avoid. But I think the Holy Spirit can give us the strength that we need, whether you're a boy, you're a girl, you're a man or a woman, to give us what we need in order to fight the temptation. Exactly. We cannot do it alone. But then secondly, recognizing that we all almost inevitably fail in this area, at least now and then, if not more often than that, we need to confess our sins clearly and honestly. Accountability, we need accountability before God. I didn't bounce my eyes, oh Lord, I stared, I I saw it, I, I lost it. So we need to seek God's forgiveness in Jesus. And yes, that grace unto forgiveness can, and it does extend even to those of us who have done adultery in our heart, but it even it even extends to people who committed actual physical adultery. You know, First John 1, 9 says this. It's a verse that I've held on to so many times. It says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's mm-hmm. a promise. So when we confess these things to God, he knows we're bro- broken. He knows we're weak. He knows we'll fall. Even for those who have committed adultery, who've had affairs, who tried to lie, who tried to cover it up, there is a confession that can bring you to cleansing, even though it may take time to heal from those things. Our God is able to forgive us 
even King David was forgiven. He confessed in Psalm 51. It specifically says that when David, after he committed Bathsheba, it says his foot, uh, like a, a note in the beginning, and he does have your mercy on me, Lord, according to your unfailing love and blot out my transgressions. And God forgives him as well. Yep. And in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, we even have an overt reference to one of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmothers, which was Uriah's wife, yes. a sign that God does forgive us. But positively, let's end with these words from Proverbs 3, because this is what God wants for us. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean yes. not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. And that kind of stable, fruitful, happy, good life, that's what God wants for us, Daryl. He wants us to delight in our relationships. He wants us to delight in our marriages. He wants us to flourish. That's a gift of God. And thanks be to God that he helps us to preserve it by the power of his Holy Spirit. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture for Groundwork. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our study of the Ten Commandments with a look at the Eighth Command, You Shall Not Steal. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris. Our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob. 